This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, making the world healthier and greener one day at a time. Welcome, everyone. This is The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you all for joining me today. When it comes to women's health, it seems that there are so many things that we could discuss from puberty to fertility to perimenopause. Today, we will discuss the debilitating disease known as endometriosis. My guest is Dr. Yoav Brill. He is an obstetrician gynecologist from the Oak Valley Health. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here, Dr. Claudia. Thank you very much for having Oh, the pleasure is all mine. I think this is an extremely important conversation um, and one that really most people don't know a lot about. So can I thought we'd start by you telling us about endometriosis. Of course. Um, just to start off, I want to clarify that uh, during the course of this interview, I'll be using the term women to refer to biological women of reproductive age. Um, who menstruate because those are really the, the people that uh, suffer uh, most with this disease. Um, endometriosis is a chronic inflammatory condition that can affect up to 10% of reproductive age women. It's characterized by the presence of tissue that looks like the lining of the uterus called the endometrium, but is growing outside the uterus. It often occurs in the lower parts of the pelvis, almost as if gravity pulled it there. But in fact, it's been found in every single tissue in the human body with the exception of the spleen. And what is the tissue? Like if you had to take a biopsy of it, what would the tissue be made of and, and why does this occur? Microscopically, it does look like endometrial glands, very similar to what you would find within the uterus. So the uh, pathologist will look for endometrial glands and stroma, the support cells uh, in a site outside the uterus. But biochemically and genetically, it does have some distinct differences from normal endometrium, and that's why it behaves differently. This disease, does it affect some women more than others, uh, various age groups? No one really knows what causes endometriosis, but it does seem to be related, at least in part, to the amount of blood that reaches the abdominal cavity during menstruation. There are certain risk factors for developing endometriosis, which include being born with a very low birth weight, having an early onset for your first period, having short menstrual cycles, meaning that you have more episodes of bleeding per year, women with heavier menstrual flow, uh, women with a low body mass index, meaning that they're very slim, women that have never had children, and women that are born with an unusual shape to their uterine cavity, which may increase, again, the amount of blood that enters the, the pelvis. But there's also a very strong genetic component insofar as that if you have an identical twin with endometriosis, there is up to a 50% chance that you would also suffer from endometriosis. And if you have a first degree relative with endometriosis, the risk that you would develop it is anywhere between three and 15 times higher than the general population. Some studies have identified racial differences for the development of endometriosis, but it's very hard to rule out bias in the way that information is collected or analyzed. When it comes to the symptoms, I feel like the symptom would be what drives somebody to seek the help or the advice of a gynecologist, um, because I, I know that there are so many of them. What are the major symptoms that somebody would present with? The most common symptoms of endometriosis include pain with menstruation, pain with penetrative intercourse, especially with deep penetration, and difficulty getting pregnant. 
Often initially the pain is cyclic in nature with pain occurring either just part of the onset of flow, maybe hours to days, um, or even a few hours after the onset of flow, but some women will also have pain with ovulation. Other common symptoms can include heavy bleeding, irregular bleeding, bloating, nausea, vomiting, pain passing urine, pain passing stool, usually related to the timing related to the menstrual cycle as well. Unfortunately, over time, what is acutely cyclic pain related to where you are in your cycle can develop into chronic pain, which is no longer cyclic in nature. And at that point, women may develop pain on a daily basis, but often exacerbated during ovulation or with menstruation. Is the pain usually like abdominal, low back, or both? Women can describe it as like um, a knife or hooks tearing them apart from the inside. When other organs or systems are involved, then you can get pain in those other organs and systems as well. So people often describe things like low back pain and feeling like carrying a bowling ball around in the pelvis as additional symptoms. Because endometriosis can affect so many different organ systems and present in so many different ways, it's sometimes difficult to make the diagnosis. And that's part of why studies have shown that it can take even up to a decade for women to be diagnosed from the time they first present with symptoms. And so it's not like if somebody comes to your office and says, listen, I have, you know, a lot of pain with menstruation or, or, you know, at different times of the month, you don't automatically assume that it would be endometriosis. It takes time. In the past, perhaps it wasn't as readily known that this was one of the possible causes of these kinds of pains. And so People would bounce around to different doctors over a period of years before a diagnosis was finally given. Uh, for many years, it was also felt that surgery was required to make the diagnosis. But in the last few decades, there's been a progressive push to make the diagnosis a clinical one, and that allows one to institute treatment without having a definitive surgical diagnosis. In part, that's because wait times for surgery are very long. It can take over a year before we can get an elective case to the operating room, especially in Canada. Uh, but it's also because I've met many women over the years that have had multiple, multiple operations. I'm talking about 10 or more operations to look for endometriosis. And for sure, there's a law of diminishing returns. Eventually, you're going to get to the point where each additional surgery provides you with less and less potential for relief and a greater risk of either complications or scar tissue that can be a cause of pain in and of itself. So if we are able to treat this uh, without surgery and reserve surgery only for unique situations in which the surgery is required, then we can safeguard a woman's health and maximize her chance of a good outcome. So the goal is to make a proper diagnosis, which could involve a detailed history, a proper examination, and a detailed ultrasound. And then we kind of go from there. Uh, most ultrasounds are able to give us some basic information. Sometimes if the story is still, uh, the picture is still very cloudy, there may be a benefit to an MRI, but that's really only in select cases. Uh, and there's actually new ultrasound techniques that are um, have been developed and are in the process of being developed, which really allow specially trained gynecologists or radiologists to identify the location of the endometriosis and actually map it so the surgeon has a better idea of what to expect in the operating room should a surgical solution be required. 
That's interesting. So uh, you'd start with an ultrasound and to determine if there's any of the endometrial tissue growing in there. And then what is the next step? If surgery is not the next step, what treatments are would the patient expect? Is there medication, um, you know, supplements? How does that, what would be the next step? A lot of our treatment of endometriosis is based on hormonal suppression. So we might use analgesic medications uh, like anti-inflammatories coupled with hormonal suppression, either in the form of a birth control pill, a progesterone-only pill, or other more complicated hormonal suppression. And um, the plan there would be to try and keep the symptoms under control until such time as, uh, you know, this person is ready to get pregnant. And at that point in time, there may be the benefit of also seeing a fertility specialist. Uh, If someone doesn't tolerate the side effects of the medication, the medications don't help, they're not willing to take medications for whatever reason, they're trying to get pregnant, or there is evidence that the endometriosis is causing serious harm to surrounding structures, only then would we go to surgery. When it comes to the hormone suppression, is the goal to be able to shrink the existing endometrial tissue? or is it simply preventing more from growing? Except in unique cases, it's really a question of controlling the symptoms. We don't even have any clear evidence that the disease won't progress while someone is taking this medication, but it is to uh, prevent the symptoms, control the symptoms, allow people to have quality of life, pain relief, the ability to pursue their goals, trying to prevent conversion of acute pain into chronic pain, which has a whole other host of problems associated with it. There are situations in which, at least in the short term, we could shrink cysts on the ovaries to make, um, to, to create a situation where perhaps less damage is done to the ovary at the time of surgery. But generally speaking, the goal of the surgery is not necessarily to shrink lesions or prevent uh, progression of lesions so much as to relieve symptoms. Uh, There's a lot of data to suggest that going on suppression even after surgery can delay the recurrence of the disease or slow down the recurrence of disease, providing a longer disease-free interval between treatments. Now, before we talk about your most recent case, I just wanted to review some of the statistics that that I um, came across. So, It's surprising to me to learn that most people or women who have endometriosis are more likely to experience anxiety, depression, and even have suicidal thoughts. Why is that? A number of studies have shown that a woman's quality of life in living with endometriosis can be just as poor as it is for someone living with cancer. I think the connection here really between endometriosis and mental health has to do with dealing with chronic pain. Dealing with chronic pain on a long-term basis can certainly lead to anxiety, depression, and even suicidal ideation. This is compounded by the fact that a lot of the treatments can have side effects, uh, whether it's surgical or medical. And also many women find that their pain is not believed. People don't believe that it's real, whether that's a teacher at school, a parent, a partner, a boss or a coworker at work. And this can contribute to feelings of alienation and is also compounded by the amount of time it takes for a proper diagnosis to be made. And I know, and I also read that, yeah, a lot of adolescents, um, you know, missed days at school because of the pain. So it leads me to believe that endometriosis, this disease does not discriminate age. I mean, it can happen at pretty much any age if they are of menstruating years. The onset of endometriosis is often linked to menses because it is an estrogen 
stimulated disease. Uh, and the pain can start with the very first period, typically within a few years of the onset of menses and can continue right up to and even past menopause. Many women find that the pain is so severe that they can't participate in activities of daily living. They're dealing with pain all the time and it robs them of their ability to go to school, go to work, raise a family, have fun, play sports. And because it recurs every month related to the menstrual cycle, they actually dread when that time is coming. I always ask my patients if they missed any time for work or school due to the pain, because that can be quite a sensitive finding of endometriosis when taking a history. Interestingly, Spain is the first country in Europe to have passed laws allowing for menstrual leave. Uh, that is time off uh, related to pain or discomfort related to menses. There are other countries that also offer menstrual leave, including Indonesia, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea. And Mexico City also just passed similar laws. Unfortunately, countries and jurisdictions offering menstrual leave are really in the minority. And I, I think that's a great idea because aside from having you know, severe pain due to endometriosis, having painful menstrual cycles really does, you know, affect your quality of life for that duration of three to four to five days. So I think that's a great place to start is giving, um, you know, menstruating women that time to let their bodies heal. When we come back, one woman's battle with endometriosis and how Dr. Brill was able to help. This is the Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Thank you for listening. Stay with us. Connect with us on Twitter at 1059 The Region or call 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 1059 The Region. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Dr. Brill educated us on the disease known as endometriosis. Everything from symptoms to statistics on the impact it has on women's lives. Dr. Brill, you treated a woman in a, with a serious case of endometriosis. How did she present to your office? Hannah was referred to me by her family doctor because she'd been complaining of pain with menses for years. Interestingly, she didn't have a lot of other symptoms. She had been seen by many gynecologists in the past and endometriosis was suspected, but because the ultrasounds had always been reported as normal, she was told that short of surgery, she wouldn't be able to get a definitive diagnosis. When you saw her and her ultrasounds were coming back without much evidence of endometriosis, what were your next steps? So in this particular case, I performed a detailed history and, and an examination, but by the time I had examined her, it was very clear to me that the endometriosis had grown quite extensive. And unlike previous times, when I sent her for an ultrasound, this time her kidney came back uh, as being quite swollen. And this was very concerning to me. So I immediately enlisted the help of one of my urologic surgery colleagues. He saw her urgently and confirmed that the endometriosis was damaging her kidney. She'd almost completely lost function in that kidney. We took her to the operating room urgently and were able to remove a lot of the endometriosis and restore some of the function to her kidney. Because the disease had been damaging her kidney for so long, we were not able to save all of her kidney function, but she did have an improvement in kidney function. For reference, for listeners who don't really know, you know the anatomy of that area, you know, from the uterus to the kidneys, that's not a far distance, but the fact that that endometrial tissue is growing up and around inside that cavity, that's a pretty extensive 
intensive uh, area for endometrial tissue to grow. Is that common or does it normally stay kind of around the uterus and the ovaries? We describe as surgeons three different kinds of endometriosis. The first is superficial endometriosis, which grows on the surface of the lining of the abdomen. And that can have very different appearances. It could be white scar endometriosis, clear vesicular endometriosis, red flame endometriosis, or the classic powder burn lesions, which look like purple blotches. That's superficial and it's quote unquote easy to remove if you have the right equipment and the right skill set. The second is ovarian endometriomas. So these are large cysts growing within the ovary. I say large, they can be anywhere from millimeters to I've seen cases of up to 30 centimeters. Cysts on the ovaries are not necessarily symptomatic, but they're often symptoms of deep endometriosis elsewhere. Deep endometriosis is the kind of severe endometriosis that burrows below the surface and attacks other organs. It's true that the kidney is some distance away, but when you look way down in the pelvis, you have the uterus and the cervix and the vagina, and just behind that, you have the rectum. And to the sides, you have the ureters, which are the tubes that drain the kidney into the bladder. And just in front, you have the bladder. And endometriosis only has to spread a couple of centimeters before it invades into the rectum or the vagina or it squeezes the ureter shut, which causes the pressure to build up back to the kidney, like in Anna's case, causing kidney damage, or invading into the bladder, causing symptoms in the bladder. Even though endometriosis stays mostly in the pelvis, it can cause symptoms in all of those surrounding organs. But it's true that having invasion into those organs is really the exception. It's not the rule. In most cases, it doesn't invade to the point where it damages those surrounding organs. It's interesting that she, you know, has lost some of the function of her kidney and it was able to gain some of it back, thankfully. That would lead me to believe that that endometrial tissue was there for a while for it to have affected her kidney function. It probably takes years for that kind of damage to occur. And, and that's why it's so silent. If you have an acute blockage to the ureter, you have acute pain in your kidney. But if the endometriosis is slowly strangling the ureter, over a course of years, you have progressive loss of kidney function without even being aware of it. So if, and if, so if this was a slow going process for your uh, recent patient, how many years has she been dealing with symptoms? You know, she began developing symptoms as a teenager and now she's, you know, a young woman. So she was dealing with this for well over a decade, which brings us back to that statistic that you know, it takes seven to 12 years for women to get a proper diagnosis, either because they're not seeing the right person or because the disease hasn't progressed to the point where it's actually detectable. Because most of the time we expect to have menstrual pain and menstrual cramps. So we just think it's just part of the monthly routine. And sometimes we ourselves as menstruating women overlook it and think, okay, it's just part of what I'm having to deal with, not knowing that there could be something lurking in there that's causing more damage than not. Painful menstruation is always abnormal and should be investigated to make sure that it isn't something dangerous that's going on. Primary dysmenorrhea is described as pain with the first onset of menses, typically related to the kind of hormones called prostaglandins that the uterus makes. And that's why things like Advil or Aleve can be helpful with pain because they block the production of prostaglandins. But other causes of pain are in fact potentially more ominous and can have implications for future health, reproductive health. And I think every 
person who's suffering from menstrual pain should be properly assessed to make sure that it isn't one of those more ominous causes of pain that need to be addressed. I agree with that. And that's a really good point because a lot of young women absolutely would expect that they're going to have pain, but it's not necessary, not necessarily the way it has to be. In the case of Anna, she ended up undergoing surgery that you conducted. Let's talk about the surgery and what happened during the surgery. And then of course, the best results are what happened after the surgery. So Anna had a laser laparoscopy for excision of endometriosis. That refers to keyhole surgery that's done through small incisions. The carbon dioxide laser was generally generously purchased by the Markham Stovall Hospital Foundation using funds donated by the community. In the past, doctors have tried burning or destroying the endometriosis, but unfortunately, that often leaves hidden pockets behind which can continue to cause pain. So ideally, the endometriosis would be removed in its entirety whenever possible. The newer techniques of laparoscopy actually provide us with better visibility and magnification, and in many cases, allow us to do these operations in a minimally invasive fashion. That was what I was very curious about was, because it sounded, when I was reading up on this case of Anna, it sounded like it was a very intense, like, you know, fully open surgery. But I guess the good news is that it was laparoscopic, so there's small incisions. So her scar tissue was probably at a minimum because of the surgery. And so healing was probably a lot more uh, easy and quick. Yes. And these operations are associated with a lower risk of infection and a faster recovery time. So we can have people out of the hospital uh, and back at home and back to work in a much shorter period of time. And it's interesting also that, you know, this all happened to Anna during the pandemic and she was still able to get, you know, the proper care that she needed and get the healing that she needed. Because as I understand, she's in full recovery and uh, she's not dealing with severe endometriosis pain and symptoms. No, I'm very glad that actually we were able to uh, alleviate a lot of her symptoms and she has very good quality of life. Uh, there's a lot of um, criticism of the Canadian healthcare system in terms of the wait times. Uh, and while certainly I support a lot of the moves to reduce wait times, I have to say in my experience, when someone's life or limb is in danger, the Canadian healthcare system usually does work very well. So in her case, facing loss of her kidney function, which would be permanent, we moved heaven and earth to get her into the operating room as soon as possible and try and relieve that obstruction to preserve kidney function. And that's amazing to hear. Uh, it makes us as Canadians really happy to know that when we need the health care, we can count on the health care. And that's a really good point. I'm glad that you mentioned that. In terms of Anna, she is of childbearing years and she was, was she experiencing issues with fertility or was she more concerned about not being able to you know, conceive a child? So when I saw her, she'd been married for a few years and she was just starting to think about getting pregnant. And I'm happy to say that shortly after the surgery, she did in fact get pregnant on her own and gave birth to a healthy baby. That is an amazing story. Now, is this what we, we, we would expect with anybody in Anna's case where there's really no repercussions, nothing preventing you from fertility uh, issues later on? And does endometriosis essentially mean that you're going to have struggles with fertility? As I mentioned earlier, endometriosis affects up to 10% of reproductive age women, and it certainly has an association with reduced fertility, either because the scar tissue distorts the anatomy preventing normal conception or because the inflammation caused by the endometriosis actually poisons the environment in which the eggs develop and make them 
unsuccessful in preventing pregnancy. Surgery can certainly improve many people's chances of getting pregnant, but at this point, we often work in conjunction with fertility clinics because surgery can be both beneficial but can also have some drawbacks with regards to fertility. And there's often special funding available uh, through these fertility clinics for women whose fertility is at risk, either because of large endometriomas or cancer treatment in which their fertility treatment can be at least partially offset by funding from the government. While 10% of women suffer from endometriosis, if you go to the waiting room of the local fertility clinic, 30 to 40% of women in the waiting room suffer from endometriosis. So many women can get pregnant on their own, but many other women do require the help of a reproductive endocrinologist, of a fertility specialist. Is there a certain point where you say, okay, surgery is accepted and we're going to do it, or a point where you say, you know what, there's not enough endometriosis for us to remove it surgically? Data around how much surgery helps with fertility is quite complicated. Um, I think there's sufficient data to suggest that going in and surgically removing endometriosis, if it's not damaging the structures, making a physical blockage to getting pregnant, the problem, it can double someone's underlying chance of getting pregnant on their own. The bigger issue is that ovarian endometriomas, which are a common finding with endometriosis, uh, are a problem in that the presence of the endometrioma interferes with ovarian function. But we know that opening the ovary and stripping out the endometrioma also damages the ovary. So you have some benefits to fertility, you have some detractors to fertility, and the net effect in any individual person is going to be variable. It's also dependent on age. So if you're in your 20s, your chance of a good outcome and fertility is much greater than if you're in your 40s. Personally, whenever I see a woman that has a large endometrioma on her ovary and I'm contemplating removing the endometrioma, I involve a fertility specialist. You know, in the ideal situation, she'd have an IVF cycle, retrieve as many eggs as possible, then she'd have the surgery, then she'd have uh, time to try and get pregnant on her own. And if the surgery caused an issue with her ovarian function, then she'd have the backup plan. If there's no endometrioma on the ovary and we're removing endometriosis, then I often won't involve a fertility specialist because I don't see any need to do that before we go ahead with surgery. You know, each person is going to have their own unique set of circumstances uh, and needs. Real benefit of these endometriosis mapping ultrasounds is it would be helpful for me to know before I take someone to the operating room, do I need a urologist? Do I need a general surgeon available? Because those organ systems are involved as well. As a gynecologist who has experience in education and dealing only with the reproductive organs, knowing that the bowel is just behind, the bladder is just in front, and the ureters are to either side, along with other big blood vessels and other structures, I need to know if I need to call on my friends for help to make sure that that woman gets the best treatment possible for her. That's an incredible story. It's an incredible it's incredible that you're able to help women who are dealing with endometriosis. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. If listeners want to learn more about what you do about Oak Valley Health, how can they do that? Um, well, there's information available on the Oak Valley uh, health website. And also uh, that includes the um, contact information from my office. 
I just don't, I do want to say that many of my patients have benefited from the online information and support provided by groups such as the Endometriosis Network Canada. Um, and this can put them in touch with other people suffering from endometriosis and help give them the support they need through these difficult times. That's incredible. Thank you so much. And you can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiella or my website, ClaudiaMachiella.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.